Section 3, Part 1 Of the Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros the Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 4, by Rossiter Johnson, Charles F. Horn, and John Rudd. Section 3, Part 1. Huns invade the Eastern Roman Empire. Attila dictates a treaty of peace. A.D. 441. Edward Gibbon. Beyond the Great Wall of China, erected to secure the empire from their encroachments, were numerous tribes of troublesome Hyangnu, who, becoming united under one head, were successful in an invasion of that country. These confederated tribes became known as the Huns. Until the advent of Monsieur Deguin, all was dark concerning them. That learned and laborious scholar conceived the idea that the Huns might be thus identified, and has written the history from Chinese sources of those who since that time have poured down upon the civilized countries of Asia and Europe and wasted them. Bulger also identifies these tribes with the Huns of Attila. After driving the Alani across the Danube and compelling them to seek an asylum within the borders of the Roman Empire, the terrible Huns had halted in their march westward for something more than a generation. They were hovering, meantime, on the eastern frontiers of the empire, taking part, like other barbarians, in its disturbances and alliances. Emperors paid them tribute, and Roman generals kept up a politic or a questionable correspondence with them. Stilicho had detachments of Huns in the armies which fought against Alaric, king of the Goths, the greatest Roman soldier after Stilicho, and like Stilicho, of barbarian parentage. Etius, who was to be their most formidable antagonist, had been a hostage and messmate in their camps. All historians agree that the influx of these barbaric peoples hastened, more than any other cause, the rapid decline of the great empire which the Romans had built up. About A.D. 433, Attila, equally famous in history and legend, became the king of the Huns. The attraction of his daring character, and of his genius for the war which nomadic tribes delight in, gave him absolute ascendancy over his nation, and over the Teutonic and Slavonic tribes near him. Like other conquerors of his race, he imagined and attempted an empire of ravage and desolation, a vast hunting ground and preserve in which men and their works should supply the objects and zest of the chase. The gradual encroachments of the Huns on the northern frontiers of the Roman domain led to a terrific war in 441. Attila was king. His first assault upon the Roman power was directed against the Eastern Empire. The court at Constantinople had been duly obsequious to him but he found a pretext for war. The dreadful ravages of his hordes and the shameful treaty which he forced upon the empire form a thrilling yet terrible chapter in the history of the world. 
The Western world was oppressed by the Goths and Vandals, who fled before the Huns. But the achievements of the Huns themselves were not adequate to their power and prosperity. Their victorious hordes had spread from the Volga to the Danube. But the public force was exhausted by the discord of independent chieftains. Their valor was idly consumed in obscure and predatory excursions, and they often degraded their national dignity by a condescending for the hopes of spoil to enlist under the banners of their fugitive enemies. In the reign of Attila, the Huns again became the terror of the world, and I shall now describe the character and actions of that formidable barbarian, who alternately insulted and invaded the East and the West, and urged the rapid downfall of the Roman Empire. In the tide of emigration, which impetuously rolled from the confines of China to those of Germany, the most powerful and populous tribes may commonly be found on the verge of the Roman provinces. The accumulated weight was sustained for a while by artificial barriers, and the easy condescension of the emperors invited without satisfying the insolent demands of the barbarians, who had acquired an eager appetite for the luxuries of civilized life. The Hungarians, who ambitiously insert the name of Attila among their native kings, may affirm with truth that the hordes which were subject to his uncle Roas, or Rugelas, had formed their encampments within the limits of modern Hungary, in a fertile country, which liberally supplied the wants of a nation of hunters and shepherds. In this advantageous situation, Rugelas and his valiant brothers, who continually added to their power and reputation, commanded the alternative of peace or war with the two empires. His alliance with the Romans of the West was cemented by his personal friendship for the great Etius, who was always secure of finding in the barbarian camp a hospitable reception and a powerful support. At his solicitation, and in the name of John the Usurper, sixty thousand Huns advanced to the confines of Italy. Their march and their retreat were alike expensive to the state, and the grateful policy of Etius abandoned the possession of Pannonia to his faithful confederates. The Romans of the East were not less apprehensive of the arms of Rugulus, which threatened the provinces or even the capital. Some ecclesiastical historians have destroyed the barbarians with lightning and pestilence, but Theodosius was reduced to the more humble expedient of stipulating an annual payment of three hundred and fifty pounds of gold and of disguising this dishonorable tribute by the title of general which the king of the huns condescended to accept the public tranquillity was frequently interrupted by the fierce impatience of the barbarians and the perfidious intrigues of the byzantine court four dependent nations among whom we may distinguish the bavarians disclaimed the sovereignty of the huns and their revolt was encouraged and protected by a roman alliance till the just claims and formidable power of rugulus were effectually urged by the voice of eslaw his ambassador 
Peace was the unanimous wish of the Senate. Their decree was ratified by the Emperor, and two ambassadors were named. Plinthus, a general of Scythian extraction, but of consular rank, and the quaestor epigenes a wise and experienced statesman who was recommended to that office by his ambitious colleague the death of rugulus suspended the progress of the treaty his two nephews attila and bleda who succeeded to the throne of their uncle consented to a personal interview with the ambassadors of constantinople but as they proudly refused to dismount, the business was transacted on horseback, in a spacious plain near the city of Margus in the upper Messia. The kings of the Huns assumed the solid benefits, as well as the vain honors of the negotiation. They dictated the conditions of peace, and each condition was an insult on the majesty of the empire besides the freedom of a safe and plentiful market on the banks of the danube they required that the annual contribution should be augmented from three hundred and fifty to seven hundred pounds of gold that a fine or ransom of eight pieces of gold should be paid for every roman captive who had escaped from his barbarian master that the emperor should renounce all treaties and engagements with the enemies of the huns and that all the fugitives who had taken refuge in the court or provinces of theodosius should be delivered to the justice of their offended sovereign this justice was rigorously inflicted on some unfortunate youths of a royal race they were crucified on the territories of the empire by the command of attila and as soon as the king of the huns had impressed the romans with the terror of his name he indulged them in a short and arbitrary respite, while he subdued the rebellious or independent nations of Scythia and Germany. Attila, the son of Munzuk, deduced his noble, perhaps his regal, descent from the ancient Huns, who had formerly contended with the monarchs of China. His features, according to the observation of a Gothic historian, bore the stamp of his national origin, and the portrait of Attila exhibits the genuine deformity of a modern Kalmuk, a large head, a swarthy complexion, small deep-seated eyes, a flat nose, a few hairs in the place of a beard, broad shoulders, and a short square body, of nervous strength, though of a disproportioned form. The haughty step and demeanor of the king of the Huns expressed the consciousness of his superiority above the rest of mankind, and he had a custom of fiercely rolling his eyes, as if he wished to enjoy the terror which he inspired. Yet this savage hero was not inaccessible to pity. His suppliant enemies might confide in the assurance of peace or pardon and Attila was considered by his subjects as a just and indulgent master. He delighted in war, but after he had ascended the throne in a mature age, his head, rather than his hand, achieved the conquest of the north, and the fame of an adventurous soldier was usefully exchanged for that of a prudent and successful general. 
the effects of personal valour are so inconsiderable except in poetry or romance that victory even among barbarians must depend on the degree of skill with which the passions of the multitude are combined and guided for the service of a single man the scythian conquerors attila and zingis surpass their rude countrymen in art rather than in courage and it may be observed that the monarchies both of the huns and of the moguls were erected by their founders on the basis of popular superstition the miraculous conception which fraud and credulity ascribed to the virgin mother of zingis raised him above the level of human nature and the naked prophet who in the name of the deity invested him with the empire of the earth pointed the valour of the moguls with irresistible enthusiasm the religious arts of attila were not less skilfully adapted to the character of his age and country it was natural enough that the scythians should adore with peculiar devotion the god of war but as they were incapable of forming either an abstract idea or a corporeal representation they worshipped their tutelar deity under the symbol of an iron scimitar one of the shepherds of the huns perceived that a heifer who was grazing had wounded herself in the foot and curiously followed the track of the blood till he discovered among the long grass the point of an ancient sword which he dug out of the ground and presented to attila that magnanimous or rather that artful prince accepted with pious gratitude this celestial favour and as the rightful possessor of the sword of mars asserted his divine and indefeasible claim to the dominion of the earth if the rites of scythia were practised on this solemn occasion a lofty altar or rather pile of faggots three hundred yards in length and in breadth was raised in a spacious plain and the sword of mars was placed erect on the summit of this rustic altar which was annually consecrated by the blood of sheep horses and of the hundredth captive whether human sacrifices formed any part of the worship of attila or whether he propitiated the god of war with the victims which he continually offered in the field of battle the favourite of mars soon acquired a sacred character which rendered his conquests more easy and more permanent and the barbarian princes confessed in the language of devotion or flattery that they could not presume to gaze with a steady eye on the divine majesty of the king of the huns his brother bleda who reigned over a considerable part of the nation was compelled to resign his sceptre and his life yet even this cruel act was attributed to a supernatural impulse and the vigour with which attila wielded the sword of mars convinced the world that it had been reserved alone for his invincible arm but the extent of his empire affords the only remaining evidence of the number and importance of his victories and the scythian monarch however ignorant of the value of science and philosophy might perhaps lament that his illiterate subjects were destitute of the art which could perpetrate the memory of his exploits 
if a line of separation were drawn between the civilized and the savage climates of the globe between the inhabitants of cities who cultivated the earth and the hunters and shepherds who dwelt in tents attila might aspire to the title of supreme and sole monarch of the barbarians he alone among the conquerors of ancient and modern times united the two mighty kingdoms of germany and scythia and those vague appellations when they are applied to his reign may be understood with an ample latitude thuringia which stretched beyond its actual limits as far as the danube was in the number of his provinces he interposed with the weight of a powerful neighbour in the domestic affairs of the franks and one of his lieutenants chastised and almost exterminated the burgundians of the rhine he subdued the islands of the ocean the kingdoms of scandinavia encompassed and divided by the waters of the baltic and the huns might derive a tribute of furs from that northern region which has been protected from all other conquerors by the severity of the climate and the courage of the natives toward the east it is difficult to circumscribe the dominion of attila over the scythian desert yet we may be assured that he reigned on the banks of the volga that the king of the huns was dreaded not only as a warrior but as a magician that he insulted and vanquished the khan of the formidable Gyojin, and that he sent ambassadors to negotiate an equal alliance with the empire of china in the proud review of the nations who acknowledge the sovereignty of attila and who never entertained during his lifetime the thought of a revolt the Jepidae and the ostrogoths were distinguished by their numbers their bravery and the personal merit of their chiefs the renowned Ardaric, king of the Jepidae, was the faithful and sagacious counsellor of the monarch, who esteemed his intrepid genius, while he loved the mild and discreet virtues of the noble Valamir, king of the Ostrogoths. The crowd of vulgar kings, the leaders of so many martial tribes, who served under the standard of Attila, were ranged in the submissive order of guards and domestics round the person of their master. They watched his nod, they trembled at his frown, and at the first signal of his will they executed, without murmur or hesitation, his stern and absolute commands in times of peace the dependent princes with their national troops attended the royal camp in regular succession but when attila collected his military force he was able to bring into the field an army of five or according to another account of seven hundred thousand barbarians the ambassadors of the huns might awaken the attention of theodosius by reminding him that they were his neighbours both in europe and asia since they touched the danube on one hand and reached with the other as far as the tenes in the reign of his father arcadius a band of adventurous huns had ravaged the provinces of the east from whence they brought away rich spoils and innumerable captives they advanced by a secret path along the shores of the Caspian Sea, traversed the snowy mountains of Armenia, passed the Tigris, the Euphrates, and the Halys, recruited their weary cavalry with the generous breed of Cappadocian horses, 
occupied the hilly country of Cilicia, and disturbed the festal songs and dances of the citizens of Antioch. Egypt trembled at their approach, and the monks and pilgrims of the Holy Land prepared to escape their fury by a speedy embarkation. The memory of this invasion was still recent in the minds of the Orientals. The subjects of Attila might execute with superior forces the design which these adventurers had so boldly attempted, and it soon became the subject of anxious conjecture whether the tempest would fall on the dominions of Rome or of Persia. Some of the great vassals of the king of the Huns, who were themselves in the rank of powerful princes, had been sent to ratify an alliance and society of arms with the emperor, or rather with the general of the West. They related, during their residence at Rome, the circumstances of an expedition which they had lately made into the East. After passing a desert and a morass, supposed by the Romans to be the Lake Metus, they penetrated through the mountains, and arrived, at the end of fifteen days' march, on the confines of Media, where they advanced as far as the unknown cities of Basic and Kursic. They encountered the Persian army in the plains of Media, and the air, according to their own expression, was darkened by a cloud of arrows but the Huns were obliged to retire before the numbers of the enemy. Their laborious retreat was effected by a different road. They lost the greater part of their booty, and at length returned to the royal camp, with some knowledge of the country, and an impatient desire of revenge. In the free conversation of the imperial ambassadors, who discussed at the court of Attila the character and designs of their formidable enemy, the ministers of Constantinople expressed their hope that his strength might be diverted and employed in a long and doubtful contest with the princes of the House of Sassan. The more sagacious Italians admonished their eastern brethren of the folly and danger of such a hope, and convinced them that the Medes and Persians were incapable of resisting the arms of the Huns and that the easy and important acquisition would exalt the pride as well as power of the conqueror instead of contenting himself with a moderate contribution and a military title which equalled him only to the generals of theodosius attila would proceed to impose a disgraceful and intolerable yoke on the necks of the prostrate and captive romans who would then be encompassed on all sides by the empire of the huns while the powers of Europe and Asia were solicitous to avert the impending danger, the alliance of Attila maintained the Vandals in the possession of Africa. An enterprise had been concerted between the courts of Ravenna and Constantinople for the recovery of that valuable province, and the ports of Sicily were already filled with the military and naval forces of Theodosius, but the subtle Genseric, who spread his negotiations round the world, prevented their designs by exciting the king of the Huns to invade the Eastern Empire, and a trifling incident soon became the motive or pretense of a destructive war. 
under the faith of the treaty of margus a free market was held on the northern side of the danube which was protected by a roman fortress surnamed constantia a troop of barbarians violated the commercial security killed or dispersed the unsuspecting traders and levelled the fortress with the ground the huns justified this outrage as an act of reprisal alleged that the bishop of margus had entered their territories to discover and steal a secret treasure of their kings and sternly demanded the guilty prelate the sacrilegious spoil and the fugitive subjects who had escaped from the justice of attila the refusal of the byzantine court was the signal of war and the Masians at first applauded the generous firmness of their sovereign, but they were soon intimidated by the destruction of Viminiasum and the adjacent towns, and the people were persuaded to adopt the convenient maxim that a private citizen, however innocent or respectable, may be justly sacrificed to the safety of his country. The bishop of Margus, who did not possess the spirit of a martyr, resolved to prevent the designs which he suspected. He boldly treated with the princes of the Huns, secured by solemn oaths his pardon and reward, posted a numerous detachment of barbarians in silent ambush on the banks of the Danube, and at the appointed hour opened with his own hand the gates of his episcopal city. This advantage, which had been obtained by treachery, served as a prelude to more honorable and decisive victories. The Illyrian frontier was covered by a line of castles and fortresses, and though the greatest part of them consisted only of a single tower with a small garrison, they were commonly sufficient to repel or to intercept the inroads of an enemy who was ignorant of the art and impatient of the delay of a regular siege. But these slight obstacles were instantly swept away by the inundation of the Huns. They destroyed, with fire and sword, the populous cities of Sirmium and Singidunum, of Ratiaria and Marcianopolis, of Nasus and Sardica, where every circumstance of the discipline of the people and the construction of the buildings had been gradually adapted to the sole purpose of defence. The whole breadth of Europe, as it extends above five hundred miles from the Euxine to the Hadriatic, was at once invaded and occupied and desolated by the myriads of barbarians whom Attila led into the field. The public danger and distress could not, however, provoke Theodosius to interrupt his amusements and devotion, or to appear in person at the head of the Roman legions but the troops which had been sent against Genseric were hastily recalled from Sicily, the garrisons on the side of Persia were exhausted, and a military force was collected in Europe, formidable by their arms and numbers, if the generals had understood the science of command and their soldiers the duty of obedience. The armies of the Eastern Empire were vanquished in three successive engagements, and the progress of Attila may be traced by the fields of battle. The two former, on the banks of the Utus and under the walls of Marcianopolis, were fought in the extensive plains between the Danube and Mount Hamus. 
as the romans were pressed by a victorious enemy they gradually and unskilfully retired toward the chernosius of thrace and that narrow peninsula the last extremity of the land was marked by their third and irreparable defeat by the destruction of this army attila acquired the indisputable possession of the field from the hellespont to thermopylae and the suburbs of constantinople he ravaged without resistance and without mercy the provinces of thrace and macedonia heraclea and hadrianople might perhaps escape this dreadful eruption of the huns but the words the most expressive of total extirpation and erasure are applied to the calamities which they inflicted on seventy cities of the eastern empire theodosius his court and the unwarlike people were protected by the walls of constantinople but those walls had been shaken by a recent earthquake, and the fall of fifty-eight towers had opened a large and tremendous breach. The damage, indeed, was speedily repaired, but this accident was aggravated by a superstitious fear that heaven itself had delivered the imperial city to the shepherds of Scythia, who were strangers to the laws, the language, and the religion of the Romans." In all their invasions of the civilized empires of the South, the Scythian shepherds have been uniformly actuated by a savage and destructive spirit. The laws of war that restrain the exercise of national rapine and murder are founded on two principles of substantial interest, the knowledge of the permanent benefits which may be obtained by a moderate use of conquest, and a just apprehension lest the desolation which we inflict on the enemy's country may be retaliated on our own but these considerations of hope and fear are almost unknown in the pastoral state of nations the huns of attila may without injustice be compared to the moguls and tartars before their primitive manners were changed by religion and luxury after the moguls had subdued the northern provinces of china it was seriously proposed not in the hour of victory and passion but in calm deliberate counsel to exterminate all the inhabitants of that populous country that the vacant land might be converted to the pasture of cattle the firmness of a chinese mandarin who insinuated some principles of rational policy into the mind of genghis diverted him from the execution of this horrid design but in the cities of asia which yielded to the moguls the inhuman abuse of the rights of war was exercised with a regular form of discipline which may with equal reason though not with equal authority be imputed to the victorious huns the inhabitants who had submitted to their discretion were ordered to evacuate their houses and to assemble in some plain adjacent to the city where a division was made of the vanquished into three parts the first class consisted of the soldiers of the garrison and of the young men capable of bearing arms and their fate was instantly decided they were either enlisted among the moguls or they were massacred on the spot by the troops who with pointed spears and bended bows had formed a circle round the captive multitude 
the second class composed of the young and beautiful women of the artificers of every rank and profession and of the more wealthy or honourable citizens from whom a private ransom might be expected was distributed in equal or proportionable lots the remainder whose life or death was alike useless to the conquerors were permitted to return to the city which in the meanwhile had been stripped of its valuable furniture and a tax was imposed on those wretched inhabitants for the indulgence of breathing their native air such was the behaviour of the moguls when they were not conscious of any extraordinary rigour but the most casual provocation the slightest motive of caprice or convenience often provoked them to involve a whole people in an indiscriminate massacre and the ruin of some flourishing cities was executed with such unrelenting perseverance that according to their own expression horses might run without stumbling over the ground where they had once stood the three great capitals of Khorasan and Maru, Nisabur and Herat, were destroyed by the armies of Genghis, and the exact account which was taken of the slain amounted to 4,347,000 persons. Timur, or Tamerlane, was educated in a less barbarous age, and in the profession of the Mahometan religion yet if attila equalled the hostile ravages of tamerlane either the tartar or the hun might deserve the epithet of the scourge of god it may be affirmed with bolder assurance that the huns depopulated the provinces of the empire by the murder of roman subjects whom they led away into captivity in the hands of a wise legislator such an industrious colony might have contributed to diffuse through the deserts of scythia the rudiments of the useful and ornamental arts but these captives who had been taken in war were accidentally dispersed among the hordes that obeyed the empire of attila the estimate of their respective value was formed by the simple judgment of unenlightened and unprejudiced barbarians. Perhaps they might not understand the merit of a theologian, profoundly skilled in the controversies of the Trinity and the Incarnation, yet they respected the ministers of every religion, and the active zeal of the christian missionaries without approaching the person or the palace of the monarch successfully laboured in the propagation of the gospel the pastoral tribes who were ignorant of the distinction of landed property must have disregarded the use as well as the abuse of civil jurisprudence and the skill of an eloquent lawyer could excite only their contempt or their abhorrence the perpetual intercourse of the huns and the goths had communicated the familiar knowledge of the two national dialects and the barbarians were ambitious of conversing in latin the military idiom even of the eastern empire but they disdained the language and the sciences of the greeks and the vain sophist or grave philosopher who had enjoyed the flattering applause of the schools was mortified to find that his robust servant was a captive of more value and importance than himself the mechanic arts were encouraged and esteemed as they tended to satisfy the wants of the huns 
an architect in the service of Onegesius, one of the favorites of Attila, was employed to construct a bath. But this work was a rare example of private luxury, and the trades of the smiths, the carpenter, the armorer, were much more adapted to supply a wandering people with the useful instruments of peace and war. But the merit of the physician was received with universal favor and respect, the barbarians who despised death might be apprehensive of disease and the haughty conqueror trembled in the presence of a captive to whom he ascribed perhaps an imaginary power of prolonging or preserving his life the huns might be provoked to insult the misery of their slaves over whom they exercised a despotic command but their manners were not susceptible of a refined system of oppression and the efforts of courage and diligence were often recompensed by the gift of freedom the historian priscus whose embassy is a source of curious instruction was accosted in the camp of attila by a stranger who saluted him in the greek language but whose dress and figure displayed the appearance of a wealthy scythian in the siege of viminiasum he had lost according to his own account his fortune and liberty he became the slave of Onegesius, but his faithful services against the Romans and the Akatsirs had gradually raised him to the rank of the native Huns, to whom he was attached by the domestic pledges of a new wife and several children. The spoils of war had restored and improved his private property. He was admitted to the table of his former lord, and the apostate Greek blessed the hour of his captivity, since it had been the introduction to a happy and independent state, which he held by the honorable tenure of military service. This reflection naturally produced a dispute on the advantages and defects of the Roman government, which was severely arraigned by the apostate, and defended by Priscus in a prolix and feeble declamation. The freedmen of Onegesius exposed, in true and lively colors, the vices of a declining empire, of which he had so long been the victim. The cruel absurdity of the Roman princes, unable to protect their subjects against the public enemy, unwilling to trust them with arms for their own defense, the intolerable weight of taxes, rendered still more oppressive by the intricate or arbitrary modes of collection, the obscurity of numerous and contradictory laws, the tedious and expensive forms of judicial proceedings, the partial administration of justice, and the universal corruption which increased the influence of the rich and aggravated the misfortunes of the poor. A sentiment of patriotic sympathy was at length revived in the breast of the fortunate exile, and he lamented, with a flood of tears, the guilt or weakness of those magistrates who had perverted the wisest and most salutary institutions. End of section 3